hello, welcome, finally again, to a new episode of A Grand Reflection. On that note, I think I just want to take some time to recognize that um, I have been sort of unwittingly in trying to keep a schedule with this podcast, turning myself over to that endless doing, endless consumption that I'm talking so strongly against. And coming forward, I'm going to really, really try hard not to, um, and I may do it anyway, but I'm going to really try hard not to say I'll have something next week, I'll have something next month, that sort of stuff, and really let it sit and be just um, whatever season uh, needs to happen, whatever cycle needs to happen, um, to, to let this whole thing unfold in its own time. In fact, on that note, I have backtracked and I've changed this... Um, this whole set of episodes, this death and acceptance into a season two all in its own, because realistically, that's kind of how it worked. There was a big gap between the creativity episode and all these, and it has had a unified focus and all that sort of stuff. So that's not to say there's going to be a unified focus with every season, but um, I think it's letting myself off the hook and realizing that um, I can stop the podcast for a while. And then I can come back and I can just count that as a new season. Maybe um, allow myself room to have time to rest, have time to absorb, time to be. And honestly, I think that that probably will um, bring in new, fresh ideas anyway. And I think that that was something I was thinking of, especially um, with this idea of endless productivity and going, going, going. And this idea of eking out every last moment of your life. There seems to be something about um, that we don't give ourselves credit for, but about rest, um, creating a rejuvenation, um, allowing us to let our passions reignite, allowing us to find out a little bit more about ourselves, see where our strengths and our weaknesses are, and um, honestly, just really come into our own as individuals, which is always where um, advancement and um, progress has been made in the first place. It's never been the people that fit the mold. It's never been the people that do the nine to five job until they're 50 and then retire and then um, can't really enjoy their retirement because they brutalize their body for 25 years. It's more, um, it's the people who unfortunately feel slightly uh, tortured within our society because everything says that they're not allowed to do this, but it is the people that decide that there's something within them that they can offer the world and they won't back down from that. They decide that that's more important than the safety and the security and the easygoing. And so with that kind of spirit in mind, I, I want to honor that on a deep soul level, even though I know it on a spirit level. I know that that's something that would help to do. Um, I want to really start to believe it. And I think the only way that that's going to happen is to take action. So, so perhaps this is a way where we can reinvent the spirit, reinvent um, what it means and, and, and how it's helpful for us. So that driving force in our lives to um, use that driving force, um, kind of trick ourselves and say like, okay, actually, this is where the most productivity is, is to stop and to give ourselves a rest. And... Um, yeah, sort of hijack it, sort of tricks it, trick, bleh, trick it, get a little bit of trickster energy, all that sort of stuff. Um, but overall, allow it to um, get us into gear, into forming new habits that are at, a lot more in line with cycles and seasons, a lot more in line with uh, 
nuances of character that are individual to us and uh, that don't fit the mold and and really kind of let all that seep in so that's what i'm planning on doing and that's what i have done this last month or so uh, especially because this last episode is tying everything together and i really I actually tried to record it three or four times and it just, it wasn't really working. And so I tried to double down and then it still wouldn't work. And I, I realized what I needed was just a break. I needed to uh, let it sit for a while and let, let my um, larger brain, my, my deeper self, whatever you want to call it, uh, my right brain really um, wrap my head around it, you know, really, uh, get those interconnections to other things integrated into my life, understand the significance of all these things I've been going over, and really um, see them on the ground level, on a being level rather than a doing level. So that's the idea. And um, so who knows when the next episode will be. But here we are. And this is exciting because this is a wrap-up of uh, really now seven episodes. Um, this is episode six, but I have a really cool cap-off, which is a story that I uncovered that I will put out right after this one. So I guess that would be the one exception, is there is one that I already have done, which means that it will come out immediately after this. They'll kind of um, come out concordantly at the same time. So uh, that's the idea. Um, being as it has been a while, though, I do want to uh, just kind of do a quick recap. Um, I'm not going to go over everything again. If you want to get into all the details and um, you're just tuning in, Feel free to go back to the first death and acceptance episodes and you'll kind of see where we've been at. But at least as far as the last couple, like where we left off, um, I was recontextualizing my own story, contaminating it with these ideas, um, recognizing that that's a good thing to do and an inevitable thing to do. Uh, our stories are constantly being contaminated, constantly being um, introduced to new ideas and recontextualized. And um, every time we tell our own story, it changes a little bit. And that's okay. And so recognizing that, I want to intentionally tell my own story. And I have been. And I got to, um, let's see, mid-20s, um, uh, a rhythm that I'd gotten into. I, I think that's where we left off, where I was living at this house called the 10th Street House with like 20 guys, which is insane. We had like 13 rooms and uh, one kitchen, <laughs> which uh, that was mostly usually what we talked about at our house meetings was how to... Uh, fix the kitchen and and there wasn't really a solution because one kitchen with 20 people is just going to be chaos no matter what but that's a side point um this old victorian home most of us uh roomed with somebody else but a lot of us roomed on it on our own and uh we're all college age we're all christian we're all trying to figure out what masculinity looks like and um how to live it out well in the context of our faith and finding some good things but finding some harmful things along the way as well and um, meanwhile i'm going through chronic fatigue and I don't have a solution for it. I don't have a way out of it. So I am recontextualizing these notions of masculinity, these ideas of fighting through chaos, these ideas of sacrificing yourself for the sake of others, um, these ideas of a purpose-filled life, um, which I uh, switch towards an intellectualism and a, a way of knowing the right answers and understanding the right answers. I don't know if I quite went into that, but that, that's a piece of it. And... Uh, and then, it, and then I kind of had to cut off the episode because we, um, were getting really high up there on time. We were approaching two hours and it was like, okay, we got to continue this next time. And in between that and this time was an event in Tennessee where 
a pastor had decided to do some book burnings. And those just fit so well with all the stuff that I was saying that I, um, I, I could not do an episode, so I did an episode. And really, honestly, it, it was a Comet Trail episode, which I am using as sort of a shorthand for an episode that's not really related to anything, um, that is just sort of a, uh, a one-off that um, maybe relates a lot of information that we've been talking about, but taking a step back from the bigger pictures and looking into the specifics and then letting that recontextualize the bigger picture. And so that's what this one was. And it fits so well. And it, it, in fact, it helped me to uh, know where I was going next. Uh, so it turned out to not be uh, uh, just some random one off after all, but actually really related to all this other stuff. And it gave me a way forward because there was a piece of this that I was missing, which is to say that I... I'm taking a strong stand against these uh, harmful norms, these parasitic norms that we have towards capitalism, masculinity, expansionalism, um, productivity, materialism, all these all these things that kind of interweave together and recognizing that it doesn't allow for human flourishing and it doesn't allow for the full spectrum of human existence. But in doing that, I put up a clear enemy and part of all of those norms that we're so used to and part of what makes them harmful is these clear lines between black and white what's right and wrong what's good and bad and i put a pretty clear line in the process that patriarchy is bad capitalism is bad <laughs> that um expansion is bad and um i didn't quite have a good solution for that because um I didn't really have a real world example to like apply it to. And that's where this whole um, book burning thing comes in because I wanted to do that. I wanted to turn this guy, uh, Pastor Locke, into a, uh, just a pure enemy and go like, he's evil, he's horrible, and um, we need to basically get him out of this whole equation so that we can all be good, um, so that we can all be free. Uh, but the problem is, is that's exactly what he's doing too. Is he saying there's these forces that we don't see, there's these things that are not okay, and we're pretending like they are, and we need to get those out and remove those. And if we could just remove the bad stuff, then we could enjoy all the good stuff. And I was kind of forced to reckon with this and and try to understand like how he gets there based off of his uh, belief systems, off of his certainty, when the starting point is actually pretty good, when a lot of the points that he was making in the beginning made a lot of sense. Like, we're not paying attention to spirituality. We're, we're too stuck on money. We need more community. Um, these are all good things. And then um, you go to burning works that are so widely loved, such as uh, Harry Potter. And it's like, how do you get there? So um, really, the conclusion that I came to within that episode was uh, the certainty. The... the um, belief that you are right and you know and if everybody else could just understand what you absolutely know to be true then things would be all right if everyone would could just think like you things would work out and that does kind of circle back to the truth episode that we um that we did way back at the beginning talking about these two ways of wow that was loud sorry about that that was uh my door closing um freaked me the hell out closing because the 
uh, heater turned on and it sucked the air. Totally crazy <laughs> ripple effects there. Um, gosh, that, that made me lose my train of thought. Uh, where was I going with it? Shoot. Uh, bear with me, guys. Um, this is going to be part of it, too, is, you know, allowing the messiness. Uh, let's see. Uh, the certainty, right. Um, that's really what causes all this, is the certainty that that your framework is the only framework. And that the the um, the shorthands that we use in order to understand the world, the complexity of the world, um, become the only lens that we see the world through. And um, I do want to carry that forward with this episode. I want to really try to pay attention to the good that I learned, the good that I inherited, the parts of these um, these driving forces, these uh, ways of being that I found so harmful and sort of reincorporate them and, and recontextualize and re-understand them because the fact of the matter is, is I still have a lot of friends that completely adhere to all of these norms and I'm not willing to lose them because I love them and I... I, I I can't believe that they are stuck, that they are doomed, because that's the exact thing that as Christians we do is so harmful to other people is we say, hey, I love you, but you need to change. Otherwise, you're doomed. Otherwise, you're going to hell. Um, and so, so how can I do that? without like how can i extend that arm of love while still holding a stance of what i believe in and looking for new ways of change while still being wholly accepting and loving towards somebody else and not demonizing them um and i don't know i don't know if i have a good answer for that i think a lot of it lies in condemning actions and being very clear not to condemn the person not to vilify somebody but to say hey you know i know you this doesn't seem like you um, this seems like it's harmful to you. You know, would you want to do something different? Um, maybe. But I, I think even as I'm saying that, I'm recognizing that that's still a little problematic. Uh, because it's still not quite an acceptance of somebody as they are. I I think that if we're going to get rid of this idea of us versus them, of these hard lines between things, of what's acceptable and what's not, then we have to say that as far as an individual level, we're always going to have to consider somebody on our side, which is to say uh, the side of life, the side of earth, the side of humanity, whichever way you want to frame it. There's no room for these are the ones that are in and these are the ones that are out. And instead, I, I think what it takes is looking at us as one body, as one um, organism, one super organism, however you want to look at that, and going like, there is some sickness in here. How can we heal ourselves? What do we need in order to be whole? What do we need in order to be integrated? In order for, you know, the heart to work alongside the liver, to work alongside the brain, uh, whichever metaphor you want to use. Um, how do we get unified? And I think just to take take that metaphor further, it's, it's looking at the... Um, looking at the systems that are in place, looking at the structures that are harmful. It's like, instead of looking at the, um, instead of 
looking at the liver and going, you're not filtering toxins right. Going like, hey, maybe we all should get some better sleep. You know, like the last thing we would do with our body is um, when something's not working properly, try to cut it out. Instead, we would look at like, well, what's causing this thing to not work properly? What is causing us to um, not be in sync with ourselves? And how do we fix that? And that takes the entire body to fix that. So I guess working with that metaphor is maybe that's what it looks like. And that's what I'm hoping to do here is to not attack individuals, definitely not attack individuals, but attack um, harmful ideas, um, harmful narratives and stories, um, which if I'm using that metaphor of the body, these, these would be like harmful habits that we've developed that, you know, wasn't, wasn't our fault. Um, they're kind of spontaneously arising. It, there's no blame to be put, but there is a, um, a stepping back and a going, is this really helpful for this body? You know, <laughs> is it good that I'm getting four hours of sleep a night? Or maybe I should try to up, to up it to eight and figure out a way to do that. And maybe I can't even get eight right now, but maybe I could get five instead of four or, or, or whatever the whole thing is you want to say. But, but I think that's where I'm going with this. So as I'm talking about these things, if you hear yourself in some of the things that I'm taking a strong stand against, recognize that I'm not taking a strong stand against you, um, that I'm taking a strong stand against the things that are harming you the things that are harming me, the things that are harming all of us. I'm trying to look at new ways forward so that we can all move forward. Nobody's outside of this. We all have harmful narratives that we're a part of, and we all have new ways of being that we can step into, and we're all in it together trying to figure it out. So with that, um, I want to continue to tell a bit of my story, and we'll just get started. All right. Uh, once again, I've got coffee, as always, and uh, let's just uh, pick up where we left off, which, um, let's see, we, I, I was in this house and kind of entered into a rhythm and was kind of moving up the ranks, so to speak, as, as sort of becoming more of a house leader. Some of the older guys moved out, some of the some new guys moved in all of a sudden I'm finding myself in my mid twenties and we got all these early twenties kids. And, uh, meanwhile, I've been doing the snowboard instructing and I keep going back to that every year. And that seems to be able to get enough to make ends meet because to be honest, our rent was not that much. Uh, the guy was able to charge us a ton overall. <laughs> and because there was like 20 of us, hardly anything was paid individually. It was kind of a cool setup, but uh, let's see. So, so there's that end and there's the snowboarding and I'm digging deeper into my Christian faith. I'm involved in this church at this point that is very, uh, sort of rugged and, um, has this idea of like, uh, basically Christianity having been sterilized by the culture and, and we need to like revitalize it and make it a little bit more, for lack of a better word, a little bit more manly. Um, so I've been going to that church for a while. I have been set up as, uh, the head of a prayer room, which was really a big moment for me. Um, yeah, so I think, I think that's where it is. Where I'd like to pick it up is something that happened a few years in with the snowboard instructing. Um, what we would do is we would, 
uh, carpool because it was about a 45 minute drive up to the mountain and uh, that's pretty heavy on the gas especially with the elevation gain and um, so we would try to curb that by driving up with our coworkers. Now one of the coworkers I had he was um, really into weed <laughs> and it was a perfect job for him because he could be a parking attendant which meant that he didn't have to um, he didn't have to take a drug test because he wasn't operating heavy machinery. So uh, parking was under um, was under the same umbrella as the lift mm -hmm. operations. But um, so those you you would report to that kind of boss and, and, and all that. But um, you just you would just be down um, uh, in basically this parking structure uh, without much supervision. And your job was really only just to like make sure that people had a pass on their car and so it wasn't a hard job either but it was a necessary job and uh basically there was this whole group of guys that uh worked that job decided to opt out of the drug test uh get paid a little bit less and um basically just smoke weed all day inside of these boxes <laughs> uh while cars went by um so i carpooled with uh, one of these guys and there's one day where we're heading back down from the mountain after a long day and he hands me some brownies and he says, Hey, yeah, you know, do you want some, uh, they're homemade. And I was like, cool, sweet. Uh, eat a good brownie. It tastes a little weird to me, but like nothing too crazy. Like mostly it just tastes like a chocolatey brownie. And, um, we're heading down the mountain and then, then about 30 minutes later, he turns to me and his pupils are super dilated and he's talking super slow and he goes dude did it hit for you yet and i go did what hit for me yet And he goes you know the weed brownie i gave you a half hour ago and i go that was a weed brownie you're kidding me like you did not give any indicator dude that is not cool you can't just give me a weed brownie and not tell me what it is you have to be very clear about these things man um, so I'm panicking i'm freaking out because i don't feel it yet and i'm driving down the mountain and so far i seem fine I seem okay, but I've never had weed, so I don't know how it, my system's going to react. Um, I'm trying not to freak out, but I drop him off. I hurry and rush home, close the door to my room, and um, try to like wrap my head around it and be okay with it. Um, but that actually wasn't too hard because I knew it wasn't my fault. So I didn't have this paranoia of like, oh, I'm going to get found out because what I can do like is I can just tell the truth <laughs> if if I get found out I could just be like hey somebody gave me this I didn't know what it was and um so once I kind of had that realization I was like you know what this is a cool opportunity because I can't change it you know like at, at this point I trust God I'm going like you know what God's gonna take care of me um whether or not you know like if for some weird reason like this kills me uh, I'm going to heaven. I'll be fine. So I think, you know, this is a cool opportunity to find out what this stuff is really like. And um, so I I look around and I, I have uh, some snacks already in my room, just some like chips. And then I go, you know, I'll just put on a movie, just a nice little movie. Um, and it took probably about halfway through the movie before I could feel the effects of the weed. So it was a, an abnormally long time. The point where like I had kind of forgotten that this is what was going on and um, I, I was just enjoying the movie. And so then all of a sudden my senses get weird, uh, my thoughts get slow, all that kind of stuff. 
And I'm just kind of having this sort of mindfulness uh, while I'm getting high. And the thing that was really interesting about that was I had this moment where I go, I really wish that I could have a chip. And um, I had this bag of chips next to me. And um, as I'm thinking of it, my left hand grabs into the bag and puts a chip in my mouth. And before I even consciously realize that I grabbed the chip, I'm already eating the chip. And um, at this point, I had heard just a small little tiny bit of science about the left and the right brain. And there's like the conscious brain on the left that is logical and where our words come from. And then you have this, this sort of other brain that um, is involved with like creativity and art and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so immediately I think, oh my gosh, is this my other brain? Is this my other brain like doing this for me? And as I'm thinking that, my thumb on my left hand gives me a thumbs up and goes like, yes. And I go like, really? And then it gives me kind of like a halfway hand thing and then a thumbs up. And I go, wow, this is crazy. Um, and that kind of fades out because, uh, you know, when you're high on weed, your your thoughts are really hard to catch hold of and keep track of. So that kind of fades out. And then it just goes back into watching the movie and eating the chips and whatever. Um, and then that fades and I'm back to normal. And I go, wow, what a weird experience. Like that that did feel different, but I don't feel... I don't feel tainted in some way. I don't feel different than I did before. I mean, in some ways I do because I feel like there's this been this huge specter of this evil thing that you can't do, uh, especially because um, at this point um, it wasn't legalized in Nevada, but it was in California. So, I mean, I technically did something illegal. I was, I, I had drugs in my system in a state where they weren't allowed, but um Overall, it was just like a really, this was the thing. This is the thing that like they talk about like the reefer madness and like the the whole like uh, gateway drug and all this kind of stuff. I was like, I don't really, I don't feel like I want to go, I don't know, take methamphetamines right now. I feel just like myself. I feel, in fact, I kind of feel a little more relaxed. Like I was able to let go a little bit. And now like coming out of it, I feel um, at ease. I feel less on edge about everything. So, okay, weird. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was like a really strange moment of like, this is not what I was told it was. Uh, but meanwhile, uh, you know, I, I have this cool thing where I'm, I'm, I'm able to not hide it because again, the truth of the matter was, was I didn't choose into it. So I'm telling my housemates about it and they're like, like, oh yeah, I've had a couple experiences like that too. And I'm like, what? Like you guys have had experiences with drugs before too? Like, you've felt these things and I mean, you guys are fine. Like we're all still leaders in the church and stuff. Like what, what is this thing? Um, but I kind of just let it go and, um, really dive down deeper into, uh, being a leader for this house. And with that, there was this, this thing that happened where we lost a couple of guys from the house who were sort of the house leaders, um, because they were getting married. And so in the standard kind of Christian bubble way was like, okay, well, we can't be mad at you guys. Also, this was really quick. Like you guys met like six months ago and now you're getting married, but okay, we'll adjust. And we had to um, elect new house leaders. 
and there was a couple of people that wanted to do it. Um, generally, we had like um, a pair to to do it to kind of balance each other out. And um, there was one guy that wanted to do it, but after we all talked about it, it kind of seemed like uh, it may not be the best bet because he was thinking about leaving the house um, because there's another house getting started, and we could respect that and we wanted that. We thought that was good for him, but we were like, okay, maybe maybe we shouldn't elect you just because you know you'll be here only for a little bit. And then there was another guy that was like an obvious shoe in, um, who's in fact actually a good friend of mine who I ended up living with for like another three or four years after this house. But um, the last one, so so we needed another leader and um, nobody really wanted to step up. And I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll do it. I, I, I think I have enough time that I can figure this out. Um, it doesn't seem like it's a lot of physical labor. It's mostly just mental um, keeping track of things like contacting our landlord when something goes wrong and all that kind of stuff. So... I opted for it and uh, pretty much unanimous decision of like, yeah, you should be the one. And for me, that was like a really validating thing, but also like a ton of pressure. I was, I was like, okay, cool. This is something that I wanted. And I also feel a little bit like a fraud, but also maybe I don't because I've been in this house for a long time and maybe this makes sense. And I feel like I'm becoming more of a man, being more responsible. So maybe I can lead other guys. And pretty soon after that, um, it, it hits into a rhythm and then we have one of the newer guys in our house. Uh, it comes to light that he was, um, sending sexual texts to a girl who's a friend of the house. And, um, it came to light because she showed us the texts and she was like, Hey, he's sending this. I don't know. You know, like I thought you guys were like this big Christian leader household. Like this doesn't seem right. I just thought you guys should know. I'm not too beat up about it, but it doesn't seem like it's something that should be going on and she brought that to me and i took that very seriously and um the other guy that i was leading with we both took that very seriously and we took a hard line and we told him he was out of the house um but we pretty much got voted out of that decision we made that decision as house leaders and then we got told that that was a messed up decision and we need to let him back in um, and on one hand, I understood that because th there's this notion of grace w within the Christian faith, this idea of forgiveness and this idea of, um, being okay in your brokenness. And, uh, it's not so much about what you do. It's about, uh, how you repent. And, um, as long as you are going before God and saying, I messed up and I don't want to do this anymore, you're okay. And that's what this guy did. So we were like, okay, well, we got to let him back in the house. But it left with like a lot of questions because I, I couldn't help but thinking like, okay, yeah, but like if it came out that somebody was gay, we wouldn't be okay with this. We would say you're not allowed back in. And I think that a big part of that is that whole idea of repentance. Like we would, like if somebody was um, attracted to men and they were saying, no, like, this is just who I am. Like, this isn't something I need to repent of. You know, maybe this is something I need to do diff Like, I need to act out differently in my faith. But, like, I can't... There, there's nothing to repent of because it's just who I am kind of thing. Um, we wouldn't have accepted that. And I think that, that that's where things started turning in my head where it felt like I felt this sick feeling in my stomach of like, yeah, but at the same time, 
uh, here's this guy, and he's sorry for what he did in specifics, but none of us are really all that sorry about what brought that on, about this culture of um, uh, of thinking of women as objects to be obtained, or of thinking of women as uh, subservient to us. And yeah, I couldn't help but see the bigger picture and go like, I get how he got to this. And even though we're all disagreeing with this one action, there was really nothing that we were saying was good that would stop that kind of behavior from happening. Um, but I didn't know quite how to articulate that. So I kind of just let go and we just continued kind of in the house and, um, you know, just it entered another equilibrium. It was just another piece of trying to figure this whole thing out. And, uh, meanwhile, uh, about that time, my dad, uh, he had gotten kicked out by my mom because she got fi finally she got tired of the drinking and he had spent some time, uh, probably about a month, uh, just kind of on his own, like couch surfing and trying to figure this stuff out. And I think at first he tried to go to Alcoholics Anonymous, but he had tried that before and it just never really worked. I actually talked to him later and he said one of the most depression, depressing things was he would go to Alcoholics Anonymous and they would tell him about like a higher power. You got to tap into this higher power, but they wouldn't tell him what it was. They wouldn't tell him how to get to it. And then uh, he would hear all these stories about all these other people that are dealing with these other uh, addictions and these other struggle, struggles that they're going through. And it would depress him to the point of needing a drink after the meetings. So I think he pretty quickly was like, I can't do that. And what he did instead was he went just straight to go get a drink. And when he was there, he met a guy and the guy was really candid and open with him saying like, uh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I'm actually getting a drink instead of going to this group. But actually, you know what? Uh, this group is a little better than that. They do tell you what the higher power is and there is a lot more hope. And um, do you want to come with me next time? So, <laughs> you know, he's at this bar with this guy ditching out on this meeting and they both agree to go to the next time to the meeting. And something about it all just clicked for my dad where uh, he recognized how much he had been holding on to and striving of this idea and this ideal of what he should be and sometimes achieving it most a lot of times not but sometimes achieving it and that almost creating another cycle because then he would feel like a fraud or feel like he needed to maintain that to be the one that's the provider for everybody uh to be the one that's successful the one that is attractive the one that is charismatic um all of these masculine norms i don't think that he phrased it that way i don't i don't know that he did quite that internal work to recognize that it's the masculine structures but um, that was what he was speaking about. That's that he was finding freedom from finally by, by joining this group. Uh, but, but part of the reason he was able to find freedom was because, um, in his own words, he got over himself. Uh, and what he meant by that was like, he started to realize that he is not as big as he thought he was. Um, that there is, um, this whole big world out there. Uh, and there's this whole big God out there was kind of his, uh, conclusion that he came to because it, it met at a church and uh i didn't believe this right away because I, you know i'm in this framework and i see my whole life uh my dad's interactions and and how he is 
um, kind of stuck in these striving norms, um, like just totally married to capitalism, but also uh, stuck in his addictions. And, you know, I'm kind of hopeful. I'm like, okay, maybe this is a new leaf for you. But also I've seen this before. I've seen you kind of suck up to mom and try to um, make a change as best you can that's just enough so that you can get back, back in good graces and then um, another cycle will continue. So I didn't really trust it until uh, there's one day where I'm up on the lifts and they had me on um, a ski lift because we were short-staffed. So they crossed me over from um, ski instructing to uh, lift operations. And I'm sitting up there at the top and it's a super slow day. And my dad calls and I think, you know, this is fine. Uh, I'll take the call because I can totally talk to him with the speakerphone on and I still got the button here. I'm still paying attention. And if, uh, if I need to, I can say, hey dad, I gotta go, something happened. So I do that and we end up talking for about a half hour. And the reason he calls me is because he's super excited about the Pope getting elected. Um, and at first I go, oh no, does he think that, that Catholics and, and us are the same? Does he think that, that Catholics and Protestants are, are, um, within the same structure? Is this all just Christianity to him? Am I going to have to explain, um, the fallacies of that argument? Am I going to have to get all theological and find the textual support, um, <clears throat> and the reasons that, that Catholics don't get it right? Um, and that's my framework, but where my dad was coming from was somewhere totally different. He was, he started talking about like, the Pope seems like such an honest guy and seems like such a genuine person. I wonder if this could be a time when, um, when Christian, when, when cat Catholics and Protestants just become Christians again and the divide stops and we can learn from each other. And I go, wow, that would be an amazing thought. And I get pulled along on that thought and we both get super excited about it. We're like, yeah, totally. Because it's like all, it's all grace. And like the inside and the outside isn't a thing, right? And like, that's not how Jesus worked. And then we like keep like bumping up, like adding evidence each, like each of us. Like I'll say like, oh, there's like this parable. And he's like, yeah, totally. Like this parable and like this and all that. And um, we just get super excited and we, we start imagining this new world where, um, Christian just means Christian and there's not all these denominations. And that was such a cool freeing moment it, it, because it, it provided multiple things for me. It allowed me to let go of this strict theology that I was trying to hold on to of like what's right and wrong. And it also allowed me to trust like the change that was happening my dad and, and beyond like, oh, because he learned the right thing uh, because that's not at all what it was. It was like, oh, because you're finding freedom in this idea that you don't have to be on the right side of things somehow, but that it's more about celebrating the goodness of who you are and stepping into that and living the fullest out of that. Um, so that was, that was beautiful. And it was such a good connecting time with my dad, but it was also really short lived because, um, just a few months after that, he had a heart attack. Now, this heart attack was a minor heart attack, and he ended up in the hospital overnight, and they put stints in his heart to, to you know, kind of open up the valves, and, and, and things were, you know, gave him some medication. Things were kind of in equilibrium, but my dad, uh, <laughs> because he wanted to get back to work, and he had pressure to get back to work, too. Um, his, his bosses didn't really like him being gone. Uh, he... He went back 
less than a week after that when he probably should have had a little bit more rest. Now I can never know, you know, what, what level it was, um, what caused what, how much was inevitable, how much was certain actions, but he had another heart attack a week later and that one was a lot more serious. And I remember the phone call because I knew from, uh, I had done a little bit of classes in EMS, uh, being a, an EMT and I knew enough to know how these phone calls go, like when they are trying to soften a blow and trying. So immediately when they gave me the phone call, like you better come down. Um, I didn't quite want to believe it, but I already kind of knew uh, this is not going to be okay. <clears throat> that he's either already passed away or um, he's very close to it. And so they happened to get me first. So I call my sister and I call my mom and my mom's further out away because she's in the valleys, but me and my sister have moved into the city at this point and we get there first and they give the news to me and my sister and we kind of grieve together for about 15, 20 minutes. And then my mom comes in and they tell my mom and I, I remember, I, I, I'll never forget the look on her face. Um, she collapsed to the floor uh, and just said, what? Uh, it was such a shock to her, especially because for her, my dad was gaining these freedoms throughout this um, this span, this period where um, he was coming to contextualize his life in a new light. And that was affecting their relationship because he was having more of a connection with himself and an understanding of who he was and um, why he does the things he does that was changing up the relationship with my mom. And it's not that they weren't connected before, but there was this newfound connection that they had, this new closeness and um, rejuvenated love and um, realness and clarity and connection. And all of a sudden that was taken away from her. And, and I remember the other thing that, that just totally caught me by this was they gave us a moment to be with his body. Um, and I remember feeling like I was seeing my dad for the first time, seeing his body there and knowing that, that he, sort of in a way he had left this place. Um, but, you know, I, I remember touching his forehead and um, reacting towards him in the way that he's all, had always reacted towards me. It's like, like a, a father to a child. And it was such a delicate and sweet moment that I'm so grateful for. I'm so glad that they gave us the opportunity to say goodbye like that and to grieve within the physical presence of him. And I think that was even more important for my mom. She had needed um, a good 10 minutes alone with him. And I, I don't know... Um, exactly what would have changed, you know, if we weren't given that moment, I think we still would have been able to grieve just fine. I think we would have been able to feel his death just fine. Um, but there was something about physical presence there, uh, that was super powerful. And I remember later my mom telling me, 
that the biggest thing she regretted um, was not being able to uh, to hold him one last time. That they had had all these conversations and these beautiful moments of connection that she felt like they were on the same page with everything. And especially after him having the minor heart attack the week before, they had conversations about death. They had conversations about um, what might come after if something like that were to happen. And in that sense, she felt very f- prepared for it. Um, but the thing she regretted was not holding him with full awareness of this body that was about to go. And she talked about it later too, um, being haunted by him, talking about this thing of like, she's grieving, but like it's, it feels selfish in a way because she very much had this notion of like, he's living on and I am just like, I'm sad that his body is not here anymore, that I don't have this nexus of connection to him, that I can't um, hug him, that I can't hold him. She, she mentioned his uh, his beer gut and how much she missed that and uh, how much that that body, that physicality meant to her. And that sort of loss of physicality kind of woke me up to my own physicality. It started me thinking again, like, how disconnected am I to my body? Like, if I'm believing that I am some sort of eternal soul, I have forever with myself, but I don't have forever with this body, and I'm mostly ignoring it. I'm There are times, like up on the slopes, when I decide if I'm ready to work or not, where I do connect to my body. There, there are certain realms that I connect, but for the most part... I've been ignoring it. I've been brutalizing it. This sacred thing, this housing of my soul. And I have been abusive to it. I have been ignorant. I have been um, dismissive. And I haven't been listening to its signals and what it's trying to say. And with that time of sitting with it and and um, taking more time to not go, 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 I started to look around me too and the physicality of the place I was in. Um, as I was stepping into this physicality, I was, I was looking at this town around me, this town that my father grew up in, um, that he and my mom were high school sweethearts in. And I started to realize how much his ghost haunted me through every little alleyway and corner and street because he had all these stories that I grew up with. And this was one of the ways, um, aside from uh, racing go-karts, that I feel like I connected most with him, is he loved to tell stories. And so he would he would always let me know, like, oh, this, this corner is where this thing happened, or this thing happened, uh, you know, when I was 17, I worked at this Wendy's. Uh, when I was 22, uh, your mom painted that pizza shop sign, and look at that, it's still there kind of stuff. Um, memories of memories for me and all of a sudden it got to feeling like wow this this town it is my town in a way i grew up here but also it feels more like my dad's town it like his mark is on it more than mine is in so many ways it's lived in and it's breathed in and can i really do that here is that is is this town a place that that fits me that that my body can be in and move in and interact with or maybe I need to find a new place. 
Now, it was around this time that um, something really interesting happened, which is we started to get information coming from way over in the Middle East about my dad's dad dying. Now, this was especially strange because my dad hadn't seen his dad since he was about five years old. He never really knew his dad except um, just as a kid. And that was something that he was never given access to because for so many years, the climate in the Middle East was so fraught that anybody with the last name of Akbar looking for lost family in Iraq um, would not have looked good and um, would have caused a lot of questions and a lot of difficulties. And not to mention, would have been near impossible to make that actual connection in the first place. Um, just because of the turmoil there, it's very hard to find somebody. Uh, records are very very spotty, and um, you know regime regimes changed, and all sorts of stuff like that. If you don't already have the connection to a family member, it's very hard to maintain make that connection. Um, once it's there, it's easy to maintain, uh, but th there's no finding it otherwise. And so this unexpected thing happens where. Um, we find out that my dad's dad died, my grandfather, who I never knew, and uh, conversations start to get in because um, apparently he had a little bit of wealth and was pretty well off and there's an inheritance. And so we start getting communication because they reach out um, with family on that side. And it's a little bit tough because uh, they don't speak a lot of English. They mostly just speak Arabic. And we're having to kind of use sort of go in-betweens and translators uh, in the form of sort of a long-lost cousin. And as we're doing that, one of my aunts, um, at least as far as I know, it, it, it's hard to tell exactly where the truth is in all this. But what it seems like is word got out that we may have been illegitimate children, that uh, the older siblings, um, my aunt uh, and my dad, were illegitimate. And the younger siblings, uh, my other aunt and uh, my uncle, were actually his kids. Now, I think this might have been perpetuated by my one aunt. Um, I don't know for sure. I, I wish I could get a hold of her and talk to her and find out her side of the story. But she doesn't seem much interested in that. So I can, I can only make speculations and guesses. Uh, but I do know a little bit more about my uncle. Uh, uncle Tony, he, um, I think he just took it all as actual word and took it seriously um, as like, oh, well, you know, uh, if they're not the actual kids, then, um, you know, that sucks. But that's how inheritance works. So here we are. And um, he got money. And my... Uh, my younger aunt got the money and then the older aunt and all of uh you know me and my sister being descendants of my dad uh didn't get anything and and that was like a really weird moment because for a minute it seemed like we were gonna get something and that was just enough to kick up the possibility for me um one recognizing legacy because you know i was thinking like here's this guy that i didn't know that my dad barely knew but he had such an impact on my dad. My dad had nothing but good memories of this guy. And it's very clear that a lot of the reason my dad was who he was was because of this early influence, these first five years of his life on this guy that he barely knew. 
that he never got to know in adulthood, um, that that was carried with him and that was passed on to me. So there's a certain level of like hurt and longing over this person that has died that I now don't have a way of connecting with, uh, this grandparent that is just gone. And so there was that. And then there was also this other end where it's like, well, you know, if this money's coming in, uh, that kind of opened up the possibility for me of thinking about maybe there is a different town that I can be at. Maybe there is some other place where I can embody a little bit better. And so I decided to take a trip. And the trip is twofold. On one hand, it's just to get myself out in the world a little bit more to realize that there's something bigger than just Reno. But also, it, I, I needed to be in a car for a while. And um, <laughs> this is one of those things where like some people understand this and other people don't at all. But um, for me, the car has always been a sacred space, a place of contemplation and thinking and a place of setting my mind and intentions right, uh, almost meditative. And so for me, the other thing was I, I wanted to get out in the world and see other possibility, but I also really wanted to be able to take this time and go solo and really just kind of grapple with my dad's death and like, what does it mean to me? And what do I love about him? What do I miss about him? What do I want to hold on to? Um, now, Meanwhile, I'm still in all these structures, and and even though I'm questioning them a little bit more than I was in previous years, there's still a lot, <laughs> you know, that, that has yet to be entangled. And one of those things is this notion of completion in the form of a wife, in the form of a life partner. And with that, there was a certain girl that I had in mind who was at church, and I always thought she was amazing, especially because at the time I was going through classes to be an EMT and um, she was a nurse. So I thought, okay, this is a match made in heaven. Like literally that's where my mindset is, is like, this is what's supposed to be, you know, like this is meant to be. And uh, we're already getting along. Uh, we seem to be friends. And, and so I go, okay, well, it's not much of a jump if we would be more. And I find out that she takes this trip up to, uh, up to Bend. And I go, Bend, I've never heard of Bend. Uh, is that an Oregon? That must be an Oregon. That's an Oregon. Cool. Okay. And then I go, oh, Oregon. Sweet. Okay. Uh, actually that would be a great place for me to go on this little trip that I'm deciding. Um, because there's some memories that I have of, um, of like seeing the redwoods and doing a few other coastal things um, in Oregon. And so that can be an opportunity too to kind of spur on some memories of my dad. So I, I approach her and I go like, hey, uh, I'm thinking of going on a trip to Oregon. Do you have any suggestions? Do you, have you ever been, you know, knowing full well that she has, but just kind of like pretending ignorance here. And then she goes, oh yeah, well, I haven't been really anywhere except Oregon or, or sorry, except Central Oregon. And uh, Bend was pretty cool. Uh, you might check out Bend. And I was like, oh, Bend, cool. Awesome. Yeah, I'll go, I'll go to Bend. Sweet. Uh, thanks for the tip. Ha ha. Uh, so I go up to Bend. And I get to, you know, the, the trip is really nice. Very contemplated. Exactly what I was needing. 
and I get up to Ben and I see the mountains and my heart just melts. I go, wow, these are so different than the mountains I'm used to, than the mountains I grew up with, but they're also so familiar. And this town feels like a mountain town. It feels like uh, Truckee, which is where I worked and did the snowboard instructing. And, and I just thought immediately, I remember this feeling of like, I feel like this feels like home. This feels like home. I wish I could move here. And really the cogs started turning of like, no, like you should just move here. Like there's nothing stopping you. Like you don't have some sort of career you're doing in Reno. Uh, half of your friends have moved on because you're in your mid twenties now. And some of them are married and some of them have moved away. And like, that's just how it goes. So like, you know, you're not tied down by family anymore. So just do it. Just go. And uh, that was such a freeing and opening moment for me of like realizing that I am always free to upend my life and absolutely change everything if it doesn't work. That I can start fresh. That I don't have to be tied to these things that have gotten to feel like weights. Even if that thing is a, an entire town. But even in all this, it's just kind of a thought and a moment. And I quickly settle back into like, no, I couldn't do that. That's too much. Um, <laughs> like, even, especially with the chronic fatigue, you know, I'm like, it took so much to even just do a trip up here. How in the world am I going to upend and move my entire life and start fresh? I, I don't think I have the energy. I can't do that. That's, that's not me. Uh, but I get back and I talk to the girl and she says, you know, uh, I was thinking I'm going to move to Bend. It's a pretty cool place. And I go, I know, right? I was actually thinking the same thing. And this gives me this energy because I go like, okay, I'm not in this alone. Somebody else wants to move up there. We can move up there together. This is amazing. And um, I start making plans. This, this gives me the sort of activation energy I needed to uh, take it seriously. And another piece that really helped is I call my mom up and I go, hey, mom, uh, so this is weird. I think I want to move to Bend. Um, and I'm kind of fully expecting her to be like, oh, honey, I don't know. That's a big move. You really think you should be doing that right now? What about your chronic fatigue? All this kind of stuff. And she goes, oh, thank God, because I was so afraid that you and your sister were just going to stay here for my sake. And in fact, I was about to tell you guys that I think I'm going to move to Idaho. And I go, what? Idaho? <laughs> you mean like where grandma and grandpa live? Like, are you going to move there? And she goes, yeah, actually, it sounds perfect right now. Um, they have a good school system that I could teach at. And I think the small town thing would be great for me. And honestly, I was a little afraid that, um, that you guys wouldn't be okay with it or that you would feel left behind. And I was also feeling afraid that if I didn't go, you guys would hold me back. So this is perfect. This is perfect. Let's, let's move. This is great. New life, new beginnings. And I'm like, wow, did not expect this coming from you. This is amazing. And then she said, you know, there's another side to this too, is your father never had stability growing up. And he worked really hard to make that happen for all of us. He it was so set against moving every couple years and wanted you guys to have a home and a stability that you could always go back to. And that season's done now. So the thing is, is like he never allowed that idea of newness to come in. And that was for your guys' sake. But 
you guys are free to do what you want now. I that that is the one thing I regret that we didn't go on more crazy adventures as a family. And I want that for you guys. I want you guys to live a life that feels free to experience and to be out there in the world. So, I decide this is where I'm going. I start making plans. I start saving money. And luckily, amazingly, I happen to get this job where I'm making extra money. And it was a desk job. And it was a boring as hell job. But they did what they could do to make it more interesting. (laughs) Um, And uh, it sucked. But it was nice to have as a season, especially because of the paycheck. And that was an interesting thing to experience of like, okay, this job isn't for stability. It's for the exact opposite. It's a means to an end that I'm like, I'm using uh, for a season rather than indefinitely to, in order to enable me to have more freedom later. And I thought that was such like a, a cool switch up because whenever I had jobs before that, the idea was Uh, I need to get stable. I need to get to where I can be okay. And this felt more like an abundance thing. This felt more like a, I'm going to take this hard season because there's going to be a huge payoff afterwards. And so I'm doing all this and I've sort of made the commitment that I'm going and I start talking to the girl again and I find out that she was never really that serious about it. It was just kind of a whimsy spur of the moment thing. And I take this moment, I go, you know what? Dang it, that sucks. But I just want to move there. I'm not moving there because of her. So fine. If she doesn't want to come along, that's her thing. And, um, you know, realistically, looking back on it, that was probably problematic too. Uh, I don't know if you've heard the song uh, by Lord Huron, um, Ends of the Earth. But, uh, you know, to the ends of the earth, would you follow me? Endless world for us to see. This this kind of notion that like somehow I'm, you know, as the leader, I'm the one that gets to choose what kind of adventures are gone on, and the, like, um, this woman just gets to follow me in that, like rather than have her own agency. So, so you know, that was stupid. I'm glad that that's not what happened. I'm really glad that I was, as as even though it was reluctant, that I was forced to go through this alone. It felt like a very good alone thing. Um, so, so I do that. And, and as time's approaching, we're getting really close to just like months away from where I'm going to move. I have a date set. I have everything ready to go. And for Christmas, my mom decides to give us a gift instead of like all this material stuff. She goes, Hey, I got us tickets to Hawaii. Let's have some fun. We're going to go from Christmas to new year's and just spend a good week there and enjoy it and get away from the cold and have this kind of last hurrah before we each go our separate ways and uh, enjoy each other as a family instead of feeling all sad about our Christmas traditions that are no longer the same. And we go like, yeah, that's perfect. Let's do that. So we do that and we get off the plane and I look around and I go, wow, this feels like home. And then I go, oh shoot, am I making the wrong decision? Did I just like jump on this thing with Bend? too quickly without like finding out my options and understanding where to go. And as I'm going in with Hawaii, I realize it's more, more, it was the relationship to the place, feeling the freedom to make memories and ideas, you know? So I spend the week there and it, and it imprints on me in a deep way. 
um, because I'm trying to step into as much as I can. Obviously, you can only do so much in a week, but trying to get beyond the tourist culture and trying to spend time in the in the towns and trying to uh, dive deep into the back corners of things, look for local places, stuff like that. And that was so rewarding and so fulfilling that it informed my time as months went on and I went to Bend. And with Bend, I thought, you know, like this is where it's at is like to, to try to dive in deep and just settle your roots in for a minute. And if I'm going to live here, I want to do that as quick as I can. I don't want to get stuck where I only know about the um, the big spots, the well-known spots, uh, because that was something that I always regretted or at least came to regret as I was moving um, about the Reno Tahoe area is there was all these places that I knew nothing about. And I, I knew all the tourist traps. I knew about Sand Harbor. I knew about um, Mount Rose and I knew a few other places, but there's this vast wilderness that I grew up all around me that I, I just never acquainted myself with. And that was one thing just before I had gone and while I was in the process of moving because it took a couple trips was I took a lot, a lot of intentional time trying to let the Reno Tahoe area seep into my bones before I left so, to leave an impression and, and make me feel connected to it. And that was really bittersweet because there was a realization that there was only so much I could do, just like there's only so much I could do in Hawaii with the time that I had left. Um, but part of that grieving process of losing the place was seeping into it more paradoxically, like recognizing that my time was limited and recognizing that I... If I don't experience it now, then I might not experience it. But weirdly, that didn't feel like a scarcity. That felt like a beautiful abundance, almost like a send-off, like, like something to fill my soul and send me on this journey. And part of what really helped with that was um, I had gotten a new phone and the camera was better. And so I started taking pictures. And some of it was to try to capture what I was going to be missing some of it also was allowing myself the attention of the moment, allowing myself to step into a way of being that was embodied and um, deeply uh, present to what was around me. There was something about um, what, because what I would do is I would go and work on the ski resort and then um, there would be uh, an hour or two left of daylight uh, after work. And so I would rush out there and I would go in my Jeep and try to find some area that maybe nobody's paid attention to before and look for the beauty in it. And there was so many cool places that I found up there. Um, I found basalt columns that I'd never noticed before that after I noticed, I would see them every single time I drove, uh, up the mountain. There were, uh, ridges, of unnamed peaks that I, you know, I never had a reason to pay attention to before. Strange back roads that I almost got stuck on, but that provided new perspectives to familiar landmarks. And amid all that, because it was uh, in early, early spring and it was up in the mountains, the cold was just biting. And there was this really interesting way of um, 
both foregoing the discomfort, but also being insanely present to it at the same time. Uh, because you you wanted to get the perfect shot, so you would take this extra time, and you would you would be okay with being uncomfortable. But it was a more embodied uncomfortable. It, it almost felt like, um, rather than sacrificing my body, being present to it, because it, it it was like the environment seeping into me, and being okay with not rushing to a comfort, uh, but not rushing to a comfort, not for the sake of safety, you know, like. Um, you know, I, my body was taking a little bit of a toll momentarily, but it was much different than a continual toll that I'd been giving it before. And it was more of a, a feeling discomfort for the sake of wonder. That was something that really impressed on me in that time. It was like, I can, I can be okay just a little longer. The car is just down the way. I can be okay with the stinging cold just a little bit longer so that I can see something beautiful. So when I get to bend, this whole mindset continues where I recognize that there is tremendous value in feeling a little bit of discomfort momentarily for the sake of a very filling and embodying beauty in the natural world. And to a certain extent, this was something familiar. My mom really instilled this in me really deeply, of this love of nature and this connection to the living world around us. But it was something that I also became very disconnected with because I didn't have the energy to go on hikes and I didn't have the willpower to, um, to see these places, to understand these places, to let them impact me. And so even though I had the chronic fatigue as I was going up into Oregon, I wanted to create this new pattern because I, I had developed it in the mountains in Tahoe. I, I wanted to keep that strong because I was seeing how much that was improving my mood, um, drawing attention to my body in a good way, in a um, fulfilling way, in an abundant way. And, and especially too, like the afterwards. The afterwards felt wonderful. Um, it would be so hard to, to break the chronic fatigue gap. But if, if I could, and there wasn't always that I could, but if I could, um, the days after that would feel so much more free too. So I knew that that's what I needed to do. And I immediately, when I moved here to Bend, I got all the guidebooks I could find. And, um, it actually really helped, uh, I had gotten a little bit of an inheritance from my dad. And it was only a couple thousand dollars, but it was enough that I didn't have to worry about getting a job right away. I could wait a few months. And also it was enough that I could spend the rest and get this really fun and cool digital camera. And this digital camera was, um, it, it's called the Nikon DF. And it's definitely not for everybody because it's only got a 16 megapixel uh, resolution and it doesn't do video very minimal in that sense but what it has is all the dials are physical it's um it's like a retro style and so what that did for me was i was never looking at a screen when i would go outside <laughs> instead i was um tuning almost intuitively like moving my hands to get the picture that i wanted and one that turned me into a pretty good photographer i feel like i started to understand things a lot better 
as far as like how to create composition and what sort of settings you need to you know get the right exposure or the right focus and all that kind of stuff but also it freed me up to as i'm taking the photos experiencing the world around me and the other thing that that did was recognizing like i have this top of the line camera that has all the settings i could want for and I've paid good money for good lenses too. So I have the top equipment, the good equipment. But um, it's still falling short. You're still never getting the photo that fully encapsulates the moment you were in. It's always just an echo. It's always just a ghost. It's a haunting of the place. The photos end up like a haunting. And one of the things that I quickly discovered while I was doing all these photos was what I loved the most was photographing the wildflowers. And there is this one spot specifically called Iron Mountain that I would travel about an hour to get to. And um, I found myself wanting to continue to go back to the same hill. And it was a grueling hill because um, you do a nice easy hike for most of it. And then there's like this last quarter mile, half mile that is um, almost some at some points 45 degrees up and so it's it's really grueling and it's really tough for this last section but the payoff is so huge because it's at pieces above the tree line which means that there's these open fields and uh wildflowers at the right time just bloom across the whole thing super gorgeous and a lot different than what i experienced in nevada because for nevada Sometimes you'll get good blooms, but they'll only show up for like a week and then they'll be gone. And these I could keep coming to week after week after week and I could watch the flowers sort of cascade through, you know, the first week I'll get some Indian paintbrush and then later in the season I'll see um, some lilies bloom up and unfold. And it was living and dynamic and it, it would be beautiful each time and unbelievably beautiful. Like, I can't believe this is real beautiful, but different every time you went. Uh, it would be in a different part of the cycle. And um, I was starting to experience this and I loved it. And I wanted to share this beauty. But another piece of this was I didn't feel like it was okay to experience this beauty for myself because these are flowers. This is not a, this is not a manly thing. This is not a guy thing that, that you're allowed to do. And so to a certain extent, I would share the photos and um, I would kind of say like, yeah, I'm really enjoying these peaks and these flowers, you know, and getting a lot of compliments for those photos. But also that wasn't exactly what it, it wasn't capturing the essence of it because it was taking this dynamic thing and turning it to be static. Uh, when you're hiking the mountains, even just if you go once, the flowers are swaying and maybe um, a cloud goes over and you see the shadow um, come across the field and change the colors and the dynamics. Um, different wildlife shows up and, and you, you know, the whole thing is breathing and alive. And I wanted, I wanted to bring that to somebody somehow, especially I wanted to bring that to women because for me, I didn't feel like I had full permission to enjoy it, but I knew that, um, a girl would, I knew that somebody, who uh, is female is allowed to experience the beauty and that's that's the role that they're supposed to bring. And so like for me, I can be the provider 
if I provide the beautiful experience and then she can experience, and then at least somebody can enjoy it because I can't really enjoy it. At least that's what I felt at the time. And unfortunately, that sort of mindset uh, created an, a bit of an exploitation in a lot of ways. So one, the, the photographs. Um, I feel like I inadvertently contributed to a lot of like the Instagram uh, highlight experience, real like live your best life kind of um, exploitation where like you take a beautiful picture of a place and then that causes other people to want to go to that place but not because they want to breathe in the nature, more because they want to get that same photo and want to give the front, give the impression that they're living this interesting life. Um, so it's it's contributing to these exploited, exploiting um, norms that can really wreck a place. In fact, I felt this really strongly a couple of years later when I um, I was getting really into Google Maps and updating uh, their data uh, they kind of gamified it, which is kind of cool, I guess. Uh, there's some pros and cons to that. I've thought of a lot of ways. Maybe I could do a whole podcast on it of like a what if of how that could be better and actually helpful to the nature rather than harmful. But um, there was this lake on the top of one of the mountains called No Name Lake, and it wasn't on Google Maps. And I went through the efforts and the proper channels to get it to show up. And then about a year later, I found out that the whole area had been turned to um, a permit area rather than a free use area because there was so much damage being done, especially to that lake. And I remember at first feeling like, oh shit, I caused all that. I ruined this pristine, beautiful place. And I don't think that that was actually the case. I think that it had been happening for years and I was just one factor among many. But I did feel a personal responsibility for that and that kind of was a wake-up call. Uh, but at this time, I hadn't had that happen yet. So I'm I'm new in Bend. I'm going to look at all these wildflowers. And I want to show them to people. I want to like have somebody else experience what I'm experiencing. And I don't feel full permission to experience myself. So I start picking the flowers. And I didn't know this because I didn't look into it. I didn't know that this could be a dangerous practice. And by dangerous, what I mean is it changes the entire uh, ecosystem because the flowers are meant to be pollinated and um, it's all in a delicate balance where they get pollinated and then um, they go to seed and then new ones come forth. And if people are picking flowers constantly, uh, the flowers can't regenerate. They can't come back. And um, I didn't know this. So what I would do is I would pick on my way down every different type of flower I could find. And then uh, I would put them in a vase and I would go and um, find a girl that I liked in church or whatever and give her the flowers and say, like, here, these are these are for you. And I got a lot of mixed responses from that. Right? <laughs> like some of them were very uh, appreciative. Some of them were awkward. A lot of them were awkward. And some of them were like, oh my gosh, you're so amazing. Wow. Which felt disingenuous to me too, because I wasn't necessarily looking for at this point. Um, I was kind of getting into that whole idea of like, I am self-sufficient. Like I don't need somebody else to complete me. Like that was, you know, the wake up call of the uh, nurse from Reno of like, I don't, I don't need somebody else for this, but I do want somebody else to enjoy this. 
right? And and so I felt like my motives were being switched off. Like I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not trying to give you this to try to impress you to get you to like me. I I just oh, I just want you to enjoy it. Please just enjoy it because somebody needs to enjoy this. And um, that never worked, right? Because I I'm taking this beautiful alive thing from nature and I'm severing it and I'm isolating it and I'm cutting it off. And and those kind of things, just like the photographs, can hint at it, which is really cool. Um, but it can only ever hint at it. It's not the true experience. And so I started to realize that, especially too, as I had another wake-up call where somebody was talking about uh, good practices for wildflowers and how you shouldn't pick them, um, with the exception of if there's like a giant bloom. Um, and even then, you should be very careful and very limited. And so... Uh, I had this longing and I, I started going to this place and getting very familiar with it, but kind of going alone. And that changed when I befriended, uh, my now good friend, Jane, but, uh, Jane, she uh, took up my offer. Uh, I was, I started inviting people to, to go on hikes with me and most people would say no, go, oh, I'm too busy. Maybe another time or like, oh, uh, I got other things going on or whatever. And, um, Jane, she, uh, she had time. She, d she decided that that would be a good thing to do. So we did. And this experience was amazing because I'm finally connecting with somebody else there. Uh, but the interesting thing was I started to realize, like, I started to try to explain things and over talk things. And, and, um, I was very wordy. And what I didn't realize is while I was stepping into it by being wordy like that, I was also taking away from her stepping into it, which was a lot more contemplative in silence. And I feel like this is something that I was starting to learn from her. It was like, there is space for the stillness. And the stillness doesn't mean unalive. It kind of means the opposite. But we adjust to that pretty quickly. And we settle into this really cool dynamic where we're both giving each other absolute room to just be as we are um that you know i need to stop a little bit more often because my legs get tired because the fatigue there comes moments where she needs to stop because she needs to feel it uh to feel it all and to breathe it in and um yeah, so, something sort of magical there happened that I think is carried through within our relationship still, which is this constant um, giving of each other the opportunity to just be ourselves. By this time, I was working in this job that was at a grocery store that I didn't really like, but was pretty stable. And I did that for about a year. And during that time... Um, I started getting closer to Jane. We started to become a close enough to be called uh, more than just acquaintances, to be called good friends. And um, I'm getting involved with the church and I'm settling in, but I'm also feeling a little dissatisfied because I feel like I've settled back into a lot of the same patterns that I had in Reno. And it's like, well, this was supposed to be this whole new life, this new everything. And it mostly feels the same. Like, what am I really doing? And while I was running that through my head, I had a coworker and he was talking about a trip that he took to Iceland. And I go, wow, Iceland, that's amazing. But I don't know if I could afford that because by then I had used up 
the little bit of inheritance I had, and I'd settled back into a rhythm of just kind of surviving and not really having a lot of extra. But he said, well, you know, it's surprisingly cheap. Where it's at right now is, you know, you could spend a couple hundred bucks to get the flight and, and go and do it. Uh, you should totally do it. I go, yeah, you know, I should. I could save up a couple hundred bucks. And I look it up and I find flights, uh, I kid you not, uh, from LA all the way to Iceland, round trip for 300 bucks. And I go, I cannot pass that up. That is insane. It actually cost me more to fly from Oregon to LA than it did from uh, LA all the way to Iceland. And so I decide, I do it and I, I take two weeks off and um, I, I go to Iceland. And I've never been outside of the country before. I did get my passport when I left um, Reno because I had these like grand ambitions. But this was really my first go at going out of the country. And um, it was a good way to do it because uh, Iceland is not that hard as far as other countries go. They're Western and they speak English. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's not it's not too bad. So uh, the way that I did it was I got a giant van, a rented one, and uh, took 10 days and went all the way around Iceland. But the other piece of, pu bleh, the, other piece of the puzzle was um, the Faroe Islands. And the Faroe Islands are in between Iceland and um, Great Britain and Norway. It's kind of like if you make a triangle, they're right in the center of that triangle. And they're actually owned by, uh, by Denmark, which is weird. But... Uh, they, um, they're like a whole other experience. And I was able to get tickets for just like 200 extra to go from Iceland to the Faroe Islands for just a weekend. And so that was part of it. And during this trip, it was amazing. I could probably do a whole episode on Iceland itself. But one of the things that I did was I prepared months ahead, um, kind of learning from my Hawaii experience of like, okay, I want to dive as deep into this as I can before I even go and really let it seep in, read their stories, understand their culture. Again, not near as much as if I was actually living it, but definitely a lot more than just being a tourist. And that enriched the experience so much. I, it felt so breathed in, and there was all these locations that I had read about and understood the history about, and then I'm there. And it felt so, so embodied. And I did have my camera, but the camera was a lot more automatic the focus and, and my consciousness was in the place. And it felt amazing because some of the weather was pretty extreme because when I went, it was in between seasons. It was early spring. Um, so there was nighttime, but the nighttime was getting to be like just an hour or two. And there would be hailstorms one day and then there'd be snow another day and then there'd be rain and everything in between. Uh, heavy winds coming off of these empty plains. Uh, you just feel it all, uh, the hot and the cold. Um, it was amazing and super embodying. And the big thing was it was like this extended uh, contemplative time where I was allowed to be with myself again, um, something that I hadn't experienced since moving up to Oregon um, on such a deep level, having multiple days where I'm not talking to anybody else, um, days where I'm just thinking and sorting things through. And um, I do that, and then I go to the Faroe Islands, and the Faroe Islands are nice. I, I actually um, had my father's ashes, and I made this sort of pilgrimage to this old church that was built in the 1400s that was never finished. And um, I hiked about 10 miles, 
and spread his ashes there and it was beautiful it was uh you know it's by the ocean it's in the middle of nowhere it's this building that i think he would have appreciated and um that felt good and then you know i hike back and i'm exhausted and i'm supposed to leave the next day at about like mid-afternoon is when the flight was and the original plan was to get to the get to the airport early and kind of spend the day um because there was a bus that was coming at nine and I overslept for that because my chronic fatigue really could not handle the, um, the 10 mile hike. That was too much. And I couldn't wake up and I missed that bus. And then I, I check and I check and I check to try to see when the next bus comes. And the next bus, uh, was at noon. But the problem is, is it would take like a half hour. And so I would just miss my flight and I did just miss my flight. So because I missed my flight, um, I had to readjust and my mom was phenomenal with this. She like, no questions asked was like, here, let's get you lodging. Let's get it figured out. It'll be okay. Um, and we do that. And then the plan is, is originally I was going to spend an extra day in Reykjavik, the capital of Iceland and kind of explore around the city before I left the flight the next day. So the good part was it meant that, that even though I was waiting till the next day to fly back into Iceland, I still had room to catch my flight. Or so I thought. I get to the buses because um, there's the domestic airport that was flying uh, uh, in and out of Reykjavik, or sorry, in and out of, um, yeah, in and out of Reykjavik, which is where I went for the Faroe Islands. And then there's the international flights that are going out of Keflavik, which is about a half hour away, so you have to take a bus. And in taking the bus, uh, it was delayed a little bit more than it should have been, which was such a bummer. And um, basically, I ended up spending, uh, because I missed my flight again, I ended up spending two days in the Reykjavik airport uh, just stuck until I could get another flight out. And it was one of the best times. I... Um, I had conversations with people. I had time to sit and reflect on what um, this journey through Iceland meant to me, to think about the Faroe Islands, um, all that kind of stuff. It was, an, it was an, another amazing contemplative time. And actually, it was probably one of my favorite times of the entire trip. And, you know, some of that is probably a recontextualizing my history, contaminating it with like what I want the trip to be about. But at the end of the day, I, you know, that's how I look back on it. And that's, um, that's what it came to mean, even if that's not necessarily what it was at the time. So there's a little bit of contamination there too. Um, but I come back and because I've, I've had this time to sit and to think, uh, not only circling all of Iceland, but also in the airport, I, um, I'm really a lot more at home with myself. And a lot more at ease because I've given myself this time. And so I go to meet up with Jane and uh, we have another beautiful time where we're letting ourselves be ourselves. And coming off of that, we start to realize that we're interested in each other and we start dating. And it was an interesting time because we're both very much in the church at this point, very much in with our faith. And we're hitting those cultural expectations and norms about like what this is supposed to look like, how it's supposed to be. That worked out for a little while, um, a few months. And then, uh, and then she called it off. 
uh, I felt so much shame, like I wasn't enough, like I had failed as a man, like uh, here I was yet again, um, not measuring up. But we stayed friends, and that was a refreshing difference because I hadn't really experienced that much before where um, I would date somebody and then say, hey, let's just be friends, and then we really are actually just friends. Um, and it, that was a huge relief because we had gotten so close at that point, I, I didn't want to lose her as a friend. And I was just fine coming back into this sort of singleness once I could get over that shame that I felt of not being enough and, and sort of stepping into like, you know, this is probably actually good for me. Um, I, I've maybe been taking too much on myself as far as trying to make something happen with someone else as if that's somehow going to make me okay. And especially when I looked back at the Iceland stuff, there's so many things that didn't go as planned. Like I planned to see the Aurora Borealis and I completely missed the time frame for it because it was too late in the year and there was too much daylight. Uh, you know, I'd missed my flights, but that turned out to be one of the best times. Uh, the being in between seasons was cool because I could see things both dormant and awake, uh, all that kind of stuff. Everything that was best about that trip was the unexpected. And I was starting to adopt that sort of mindset in my life of like, you know, maybe the unknown isn't so bad. Maybe the unexpected and the changes and the weirdness of life that gives it twists and turns is the essence of life itself. Maybe that's okay. And so it's in this context that I got a new job. And this job was at a tea house. Uh, it's called Townsend Tea House, or at least it used to be. They're out of business now. But at the time, I got the job here, and I'm working with all these women. And I'm the only guy. There's about six of us. And um, I stick out like a sore thumb in one sense. In one sense, I absolutely fit in. Um, we we all like relate to each other really well right away and we all feel like a team and we're all absolutely loving the tea, which is something that I got a love of from my time at Starbucks, uh, that job that Kim got me because um, Starbucks had these teas and I kind of branched off from there. I started to get a love for tea and I had way too many teas at home and this was like a dream job. This was like, oh God, they had like hundreds of teas that I think there was like 112 actually is like the options that were op offered. And then we would make combinations of them. So it was like, it was endless. And it's in this context where like, I'm this like Christian male and all my coworkers are like new age, like hippie women that are like into like healing crystals and incantations and uh, tarot readings and, and all these kind of things. And all these things that I was told is like, oh, that's witchcraft. That's bad. You know, that is uh, not okay to get into. Like that's, that's letting the devil influence you. That's letting the, the powers, the demonic forces, uh, giving them a foothold so that they can step in. Um, you don't want to go outside of the powers of God because the powers of the world will consume you kind of stuff. But it was another one of those specters, just like with the drugs. I was like, hold on. Like, well, first off, these women were doing drugs, uh, especially psychedelics and weed, like pretty regularly. And they were well-adjusted and they were fine. They were probably better workers than I was for the most part. And um, they weren't evil. They were 
uh, in fact, a lot more healthy than a lot of other relationships that I had. We had this connection, all of us, and, and sort of this default that was just like, hey, if I have something going on, I'm going to let you know so that our work environment can be nice. You know, there wasn't a, like, oh, I have to hide these things about me. It was like, I'm just going to be blunt. And if you can't deal with it, then that's fine. Just let me know and we'll stop talking about it. But I'm going to default to being open. I'm going to default to um, being honest with myself and being honest with you. And it was during this time, too, that another thing was going on, which is um, we got a new president. And this was something that was utterly confusing to me. And I think it was confusing for a lot of Christians, um, at least the circles that I had gone in, because as much as there was a toxic, um, oh, wait, I was trying to say that differently. What was I say? A parasitic masculinity that was still pervasive. There was a different way of um, being that was countercultural. And all of a sudden, um, all these Christians elect this president that is very much not acting like a Christian. And that was so much of a shock to me, how many, as much as there were a lot of us that were confused by that, there were so much of us that weren't. And it was so hard to understand, like all these people that I grew up in the church with, like I must have had a different faith than they did because if they're okay with this, then we are fundamentally understanding this stuff differently. If, if this guy who is a millionaire, who uh, has been shown to do shady deals, who very clearly cares about himself, who is mean to other people and puts them down, who's objectifying to women, and who's been that way for decades. Um, if he is supposed to be our sort of Christian savior in America, which first of all, felt problematic to me too. I'm like, why, why are we looking for somebody to fix us or save us? Like, didn't we already have that? Wasn't Jesus the person that was supposed to, <laughs> to do that? And uh, aren't we just kind of considering ourselves like in exile in Babylon? Isn't that, isn't that like the narrative? Like we are the, like the ones subjected to the principalities, not the ones creating the principalities and, and the leaders like, so, so it was weird. I, I couldn't wrap my brain around that. And that was coming off the tail end too, of like, when I moved to Oregon, I was, I'd found a new church and it was in a totally different context, but at the same time, everything felt the same. Uh, there's somebody greeting me at a door with a little, uh, five by seven pamphlet that was saying what was coming up. Um, there were screens that were showing which groups were meeting and when, uh, there was a connection desk which you would go to if it was your first time or if you wanted to get plugged in with one of the groups. There were, um, there were three worship songs that would start out a 45-minute sermon that would end in three worship songs and prayer up front. Um, all this stuff was like, it wasn't bad, but it was also like, what are we doing? Because isn't, like, none of this is biblical. It's not that it's not okay. It's absolutely okay, but like, what other things are we doing that are just cultural that have nothing to do with the faith itself, have nothing to do with the, the, um, the beliefs, but have everything to do with just like tradition and, um, culture. And so that was already on my mind. And then we have this new leader that Christians seem to be excited about. And I'm just utterly confused because I'm like, who 
who are you guys? I thought I knew you. I thought I understood you. And it's clear that I don't. And my faith means something very different than it does to these people. And so then like, what is the point of even going to church? Like at this point, I'm like having this crisis of faith where I'm like, I don't even want to be associated with this. This just gives me like a bad taste in my mouth. And this isn't what I thought it was. And maybe I can still do what I, what I thought was uh, my faith. Like maybe, maybe I can still do that. Maybe it's just more individual. And um, maybe I just have to decide it myself and understand it myself. And so I start digging through the Bible with newfound fervor, ironically, um, because I'm questioning. I'm going like, like I'm, I'm antagonizing it. I'm, I'm going in like, okay, what is this about? And um, I'm there. I'm in that place. And weed comes back into the picture. Um, marijuana was legalized in Oregon. And this was another one of those weird things because up here it's legalized and the people I'm talking to in church, they're totally okay with it because it's legal. And I remember down in Reno where it was not legal, everybody was talking about it as if it's some like mortal sin. And, um, it's just like weirding me out. I'm like, what, we're like, okay with it now just because, um, there's some laws passed, which we totally agree is secular is not like laws passed by the will of God, but are just like the ways that people in the world do things. But now it's okay. Like, what is this? Um, so I decided to like investigate it myself and actually like choose to try it rather than have it done to me. Um, and so within this choice, I didn't know what I was doing. And I looked for something that was on sale and it was a, uh, this reduction. I'm trying to remember what they're called. Um, but basically it's like, uh, a distilled, pure THC and what you're supposed to do is it's like this little plunger and you're supposed to like put like I didn't read the package closely but what you're supposed to do is put like a they say a rice amount and that's like 10 uh, micrograms which is a pretty good dose and um, I definitely did a lot more than that I, I put it in some cheese and I downed the whole thing and um, looking back I think I probably did somewhere around 75 micrograms which is a lot for anybody. Um, that's that's a good amount. That that will uh, mess you up a bit. But that is a really really high amount for somebody who hasn't had weed in their system in like five years. So, uh, needless to say, I got in over my head pretty quick, and it got more existential and psychedelic, which can happen on high doses of THC. Essentially what happened for me was this moment where I felt the nothingness. I don't know how else to say it except that I could recall all these facts and fairly well considering, but like I could say like I live in Oregon. Uh, I used to live in Reno. My name is Aaron. All these things. And they had meaning, but they also had absolutely no meaning. It was like this pure nihilism, existential dread, uh, nothing has meaning, everything is chaos. All these structures that we put are just like a ghost that doesn't really exist um, compared to the vast unknown out there. And my life is nothing. My life means nothing. And there was that, and that was terrifying. And then more terrifying than that was this giant pillar of light that came up from my room, broke through the ceiling, and encapsulated everything 
And I immediately interpreted that as God, immediately interpreted that as um, this divine entity. Um, and that was more terrifying. But then later, after like processing it for about a week, I thought, you know, maybe, maybe that was nothing. Maybe all this is just in my brain. And, you know, they, they say that, that like this kind of stuff affects your mindset. And it was this weird, surreal moment where I was like, you know, they also say that like you can lose your faith with that kind of stuff. That's why you don't mess with it because it can mess with your brain and it can change what you think and believe. And I felt like that was true. But weirdly on a meta level, I was like, you know, I think that's true, but I think it's probably true on the other side too. Is like if <laughs> if I if if I can lose my belief because of chemical, then maybe I only have my belief because of chemicals. And maybe that's all this is. It's just my brain trying to make sense of the world and creating a framework and uh that's it. That's it. It's just a framework. Uh God doesn't exist actually. Nothing exists. Life is just what we make it. And maybe there is something to that pillar of light but in a beautiful way where I can choose what I believe and why. And it's all absolute freedom that, um, that I get to live my life how I want to live it because there's literally nothing that tells me I can't. And the interesting thing with that was stuff got to be um, easier to resist. And what I say by that is like, like for instance, um, pornography had shown its ugly head again. And so there's this, this stuff that I hadn't been addicted to for a while and it had come back and, um, and then I have this experience and then I go back to the pornography, but because I no longer believing in God, I'm just going like, you know, there's nothing wrong with this. I can just go and experience it if I want, you know, who, who cares? And I go and experience it and I, and I go to this insufficient coping mechanism and because there's not the shame and the hurt that's involved with it too, because I feel like I'm doing something mortally wrong, that, that I'm doing something that's an affront to God, um, it just feels dissatisfying. There's no like, oh, I did something wrong. There's no, oh no, what's going to happen? There's just like, huh, that's all it was? Weird. I don't like it. It's it's not enough. It's not, it's not good. I don't think I'm going to go back. And... Um, because of that, I, I, I stopped and it was like, no big deal. This thing that I was struggling with over and over and over again and being told over and over and over again, like, this is not okay. You cannot do this. You may love it. You may, and it's addictive. We get that, but you can't do it on the other side of that. Simply just saying, yeah, it's allowed. I mean, if you really want to go for it, go for it. And realizing that I just don't really like it. I don't want to go for it. And probably part of the reason that I felt so bad all along had nothing to do with some conscious in God, but had much more to do with a deeper part of me recognizing that I deserve to live more fully than that. That I deserve a better, bigger, um, more rounded experience of connection rather than this specter rather than this ghost so i'm experiencing sort of this um kind of casual disenchantment with my faith 
this deconstruction that's not really not really traumatic not really difficult it's just like huh i don't know i don't think it exists and so i take rather than the floundering i go like okay definitely doesn't exist i'm just going to sit with that for a few weeks i'm going to let that happen let that be a thing like i think it's probably true but i keep kind of trying to go back and i'm just going to i'm going to commit to this for a while and see how it plays out and as i'm doing that i realize that there's this voice in my head that was always a voice in my head but I always interpreted it as God, which was like this intuition, this um, this deeper knowing, this deeper being. And I realize that it can't be God. I don't think it's God because I don't believe in God. But it's still guiding me and it's still telling me what what is good. You know, it's still telling me which directions to go, giving me insight about myself. And I just get curious and I go, okay, well, who, who is this? What is this? Like, um, is this, this other part of my brain, this, this part that I experienced all those years ago on weed, that, um, that right brain that's been laying dormant? Um, what are they like? How, what, what, what is this person housed within me? Like, and, and can I access them? Is there a way for me to become acquainted with this other part of me? So as I'm wrestling through this thought, I go and I visit my sister. Now my sister, uh, at this point, she's moved up to the Tahoe area and, um, is on the North shore. Uh, pretty awesome place to live. <laughs> and so uh, I'm visiting her and she has, um, a bag of mushrooms and she says, Oh yeah. Uh, my boyfriend's twin brother was, growing these do you do you want them and on one hand i'm going like i can't do that that's those are hard drugs that's psychedelics that's that's a step up from weed Uh oh maybe they were right maybe um it is a gateway drug shoot um should i is that okay well she's giving me um maybe i shouldn't refuse and part of that was because i didn't want to seem not cool because my sister had so many qualities that i was jealous of that I wanted to, to, to be, but didn't feel like I could be. And in fact, I think some of the reason I loved my job at the tea house was because I was surrounded by people that reminded me of her, um, that there were these certain things that, um, these certain admirable qualities that I felt like I, um, I didn't have access to as a male, but that I liked to be around, um, full of color, full of, uh, free-flowing tie-dye or hemp cloth and crystals and which I grew up with and I loved I always loved uh rocks fossils and minerals and so that was another one you know and and um this freedom of embodiment and expression and like life you know like uh plants everywhere um I wanted that but I, I didn't have access to that and so uh, there's a certain degree of like thinking my sister's a lot cooler than me. She she would go to Burning Man every year. And, um, you know, so I, I said, well, you know, I got to be honest. I haven't done this before. She's like, oh, it's no big deal. You know, you just find the right time, set setting, all that kind of stuff. And then just, you know, enjoy it. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess. You know, and I take those home with me. And um, that was probably my first relationship to the mushrooms. Because, um, well, one, just kind of as a backtrack, something that I'm recognizing now is 
is there's almost kind of a vast tradition of uh, medicine women. And I talked about this a little bit in the witch episodes, but um, if I look back, this giving me the mushrooms reminds me so much of the stories I've heard of Maria Sabina, who is this old uh, elder from uh, Oaxaca, Mexico, who uh, opened up these sacred ceremonies with these indigenous plants to Westerners saying like, no, this is something that everybody should experience. This is good. Um, got a lot of flack for it because um, people guarded those as well. But um, she decided not to. And uh, she is the reason why we have magic mushrooms uh, because she opened up those ceremonies and other people found out about them. And then it grew, especially in the 60s, um, up until the height of the drug war when um, especially Nixon and uh, Reagan and a few others um, actually come to think of it also Clinton, also heightened by Obama. Uh, the drug war was really strong for a long time. Uh, yeah, when they kind of limited that, especially by making it another one of those Schedule One substances, uh, those ones that are um, so considered so... Um, for it to be Schedule One, it's it has to be um, considered dangerous for your health and showing no medical benefit. Um so weeds in that and psychedelics are in that. And there's a few other ones like, uh, I think heroin and methamphetamines or something. Um, I can't remember all the other ones that are in there anyway. Uh, so my sister, Lauren, she reminds me in some ways of like this, these women elders or something, you know, it's like, especially in this context, she's giving me, she's imparting it to me, uh, that was homegrown and, uh, formed through relationship and then sent off my way um, as a blessing. And I felt a sacredness to that because the relationship, the the trust that she put in me and the reaching out there. And I felt this certain part of myself that I wasn't giving myself access to as far as like this freedom to be. And so I wanted to take it seriously. And it's the and most interesting thing. Like this was the first part of my relationship with the mushrooms and um it was very intuitive as well that that intuitive me that i was talking about earlier that i was getting acquainted with seemed to know better than conscious me when the right time was because there were certain times where it seemed perfect like i was in a good mindset i knew nobody was going to be around and um i was ready to go and then there's this certain thing holding me back that that intuitive voice going like no now it's not the time and it was so weird because I got so used to listening to this voice for so long. There was this internal guidance that I interpreted as God. And now it's telling me when and when not to do drugs. And uh, it was such a weird and freeing moment when that intuitive voice said, now's the time, go do it. And on the surface, it was the absolute worst time. I was coming off the tail end of whether or not I believe in anything. I was not sure when my roommates were going to come home. I was uh, trying to understand um, because uh, Jaya, how much of this is just another of me attaching to someone because they're my lifeline, like I did with uh, the girl from Reno, and and how much of it is like a genuine like I want this relationship, and I was very wary of that. Like I, I wasn't sure how I actually felt and how much I just wanted to go along with it because um, that's what was safe because she was my lifeline and I wanted to be in sync with her so that I wouldn't have to be alone with stuff. And so all this is going through my head. And then the intuitive 
uh, Right Brain Me goes, now's the time. And I go, now's the time? You know, but I listen to that. Uh, and I take it. And I think in retrospect, I took a lot more than I thought I took because when I looked it up online and tried to get a sense of how much was there, I was doing it based off of normal mushrooms. And these were a thing called penis envy, which I could probably just do a whole thing. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, aligns with uh, sexuality and drug use and uh, mushrooms. Um, definitely not just a Western things like the drug sex rock, rock and roll and all that like indigenous ceremonies having to do with drum beats having to do with uh embodiment and feeling everything in your body and very like naked dances and all this kind of stuff and also uh having deeply to do with sexuality specifically like uh native americans have a word um and i got this from uh braiding sweetgrass uh, which is a pretty popular book right now talking about um, the intersections of science and indigenous thought. But she had a side note in that book talking about um, mushrooms and they, they have this word for mushrooms that, that gives uh, images of uh, popping up overnight, uh, seemingly out of nowhere. Oh, but they use the same word for uh, erections, like like morning wood. And which actually, come to think of it, morning wood is like a whole other one of those too. Uh, didn't think of that in till now but so there's like this whole other thing um so it's funny that like my first experience with these is um something that is named penis envy like literally they're named that because they're so thick and big of mushrooms that it's like uh you feel jealous of them because they're more well endowed than you are <laughs> so anyway i didn't know they were penis envy and penis envy is twice give or take twice as potent as normal mushrooms so i thought what i was doing was about two two and a half grams which is a pretty high dose anyway um that's supposed to be enough to get on a full psychedelic trip and i i was taking essentially double of that which is verging on the heroic that is what they call it um a heroic dose which is you basically are um losing sense of time and space going on a journey right the hero's journey um which is problematic too that's very externalized um, and that's not at all how these things are. They're very internal. Uh, so anyway, uh, I take that, but unbeknownst, like, I don't know how deep it's going to go. And I'm in my room and nobody's home and I decide, okay, well, I'm going to make the most of this. So I got about 45 minutes until this hits. Uh, I'm going to write down what my intentions are. I'm going to meditate and get myself in a good framework and I'm going to see what happens. And so I write a few things down about, uh, my thoughts on Jane, a few things about my thoughts on, god or the the notion of god that i have like maybe this oneness you know i'm not i'm not quite sure what i mean by that but i i start to get this feeling especially from this intuition that i'm holding on to this feeling that there is something more that there is something deeper i just don't quite know what it is so i write that down i um start to uh meditate and as i'm going in the meditation i'm about 20 minutes in and i can see these fractal patterns behind my eyes and I go, oh, it's hitting. Okay, cool. And so I open my eyes and at this point I've started to have some plants in my room. I've started to um, come to terms with the fact that I like life, um, like wildlife. I like, um, I like plants. I like having plants. I like experiencing plants in nature. And so I have a few and um, it's this beautiful moment where I'm, I'm communing with my plants. I feel the life of them. I feel the living isness of them 
and I feel like I'm communicating them with them, not in a human way, but but more like I'm I'm spending time with them. And I enjoy this and this is good, but it doesn't feel crazy or anything. And then I kind of feel like maybe I have to go to the bathroom, but not really. Um, but there is also this drive of like, oh, but I want to go to the bathroom. I want to get into that room. And so I open my door or or I'm about to open my door and I get another intuitive sense. I get another sense coming in from my right brain, except this time it feels like it's my right brain channeling something else, something beyond me. And the best I can describe is that it's the mushrooms themselves. And I immediately know that intuitively as, as this is happening. I'm like, oh, the mushrooms are speaking. Um, and they send through my intuitive channels. They say, hey, you can go into the bathroom if you want. It's going to get hard. It's going to get very hard. Now, on the other hand, you can stay here in your room if you, if you want. You can stay in your room, you can commune with your plants, see fancy colors, have some fun, be okay. Um, but it's going to be its own reward if you do that. It's just going to be the moment. You're not going to find out anything new about yourself. Uh, you're not going to have this deep, changed revelation or understanding. But if you go in the other room, it's going to be really hard. In the bathroom, you will understand a lot about yourself. And the bathroom is waiting, that's the thing. You don't have to do this now. There's no scarcity here. You can always step into this later. There is an opportunity if you want it. I just want to make sure that you know what each outcome is going to give you. And that was kind of that was how it was kind of put to me. And again, not with not with words, just in an intuitive sense of like this is what's going to happen. And me being the kind of person I, I am, I'm too curious to not see what's in the other room, to not see what's in the bathroom. So I go into the bathroom and I shut the door and there's all sorts of crazy colors around. I, like I'm picking up different ways of light that I never had picked up before and I'm, I'm my mind is blown. I'm seeing these swirls kind of around me of uh, sort of energy, um, almost looks like DNA sometimes. And uh, I'm just enjoying that. And then I look myself in the eyes and I start to see, um, I start to see these um, faces merge in and through me. Uh, and it's the faces of all of these people that I've known through my life. Like all of a sudden, like I'm seeing how much I am pieces of other people. Like the, the lines between me and everybody else get so blurred at this point. And then from there, all of a sudden, I find myself, I am my, my father. And I'm my father at about 30, about my age at the time. And, but I am him in a different reality. I am, I am him in a bathroom, dying from a drug overdose, something more like heroin, realizing that the drugs are already in my system and there is no time, no conceivable way that anybody is going to be able to save me, that I am in my last moments of life. And I feel that. And, and again, it's an alternate version of my father. It's not how my dad actually died, right? He died of the heart attack. But I'm feeling this and I know this. And I'm feeling it in the very core of my being that I will not see my kids again. I will not see my wife again, my friends, nobody. I'm going to die alone in this bathroom. And then I do. I feel myself die. As my father, I die. And then um, immediately I become my mother. And I become my mother giving birth to Jayan. <laughs> and I feel the pains of childbirth. And I feel 
the difficulty of that and also the joy. And then merging from that, I get this um, other shift that brings me into a life with Jane and a life where we're living together, where we have decided to be romantic for the rest of our lives, where we have kids, we uh, grow up together, we grow old together. And then I experience her dying and I experience me of old age and looking back on my life and feeling uh, a joy in the sadness, like a, a wonder at what I was able to experience with her and a curiosity about what's next. And after that, after that, the mushrooms speak to me again. And they say, okay, now that you've seen everything, you've experienced these different realities, these different times, these different modes, these different existences, we will bring you back. You are going to come back to your old existence, but you can either let that just happen or you can choose to take an active part in it. You can decide that this is the reality that you want, the reality that you're coming back to. And then you can know when you come back, you can know and you can always know and you get to know that that's what you chose. So what it would be. And again, it was posed as an intuitive thing and it was posed as a thing of like, there's no have tos here. Like if you don't this time, there, you, could, you could choose to do it another time and then choose into this reality as well as you come back. It's, it's not like a, this is the only opportunity. Like this is an abundance thing. This is a uh, eat the fruit now or there will be more fruit later. Who cares? Like just know that's what's, it's, what, what is happening here. So I choose that. I decide, yeah, I want to fight back. Absolutely. I will fight back to my reality. And I do that. Um, and I choose to take this active role where I feel like I'm walking back through these parallel realities, narrowing them down, 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 down until I get back into this one that I've always existed in. And it feels like a coming home. I feel connected into my body. I feel connected into my space. There's tremendous meaning, the exact opposite of when I had the chaos with the weed, where all of a sudden I am feeling like I've felt this bigger grandness of myself. Like the best I can describe it is when I was in that state of multiple realities and states is like my original notion of who God was, I became that. But then a God, oneness, whatever you want to call it, that was out there beyond me was so, so, so much bigger than that, that I felt smaller than I'd ever felt before. So even within these, uh, this unboundness from time and space and this ultimate power to cause whatever I wanted to cause within my life or the lives of others, within that framework, I still felt smaller than I'd ever felt before. And so stepping back in from that largeness uh, and the bigger large, an awareness of the bigger largeness, coming back down into this small little everyday existence felt so precious and so right and so beautiful and so alive, so alive. And I remember there was this moment right at the end where I felt like I was coming back into myself and I'm ready to go outside. And then I, I realized, oh shoot, uh, my roommate's home. And, um, I go to turn the knob because I'm excited and I want to tell him about what I just experienced. I want to tell him like how beautiful life is, how amazing everything is. And this time, this knob, I stop consciously. I, it's just straightforward. Like, no, it's better to not do that because as much as that would give you joy, 
that's not something that he'd be able to handle right now. Um, so stay here for his sake just for a minute so that you can sneak into your room and let this fade off more and um, come back to existence and be a little bit more yourself when you actually do interact with him, say, in an hour. I'm like, okay, yeah, that, that's, that's good. Let's do that. So I do that. And I come back, and I'm back in where I've always been, um, the same life, and nothing has changed, and everything has changed. I find this new purpose and meaning in every little day-to-day thing. Like, everything looks beautiful and alive, and I, every bit of my body, even the parts that I wish would change, feel wonderful these aches and pains like showing me an aliveness within myself and this uh this fatigue that i can only seem to sort of halfway outrun which by the way i did outrun actually that was a piece of um a piece of what let me have the energy to think about all this stuff in the first place running back about the time i started at the tea shop i started the keto diet and um something with it just kind of switched it up um Apparently, my body doesn't like carbohydrates and uh, would rather deal with fats. So it, it was as easy as that, and that helped a lot, but it never actually made it go away. It just kind of um, mediated the symptoms well. And that was always like a constant fear was like, okay, what if, the, what if this is temporary? And what if this all goes away? But coming out of this experience, that fear of what if this is temporary would, turned into a gratitude of like, you know, maybe tomorrow the fatigue will just be back. And maybe, you know, maybe I never find another solution, but I've been given this opportunity to have enough energy to rethink everything. And I'll be grateful for that for the rest of my life. And that same sort of mindset, like it, it moved up towards uh, this whole stuff with Jane was like, you know what? I experienced a whole life with her. And when I got to the end of it, I didn't regret one minute of it. And what is the measure of a life, you know? Would it have been worth it more if it had gone to 100 years rather than 80 years? Okay, but what about if it was only 20 years and then she died unexpectedly? Would I consider that not worth it? Obviously not. I don't consider my parents' relationship to be not worth it because my dad died at 50 rather than 80. And so all of a sudden, this whole thing seems a lot more simple which is like, okay, I don't have to put an eternality on any of this, but I can enjoy what's in the moment, enjoy right now, and enjoy the connection and the experiences that I have, and be unafraid for what's next, because even if all of it ends, it's been enough, and it's always been enough, and it's good. And so uh, that recontextualized my um, relationship with Jane, where I talked to her after the fact and said, yeah, I think I would like to see where this goes. Um, even if you're interested in just being friends with benefits, uh, that still sounds good to me because I connect with you well as a friend. And I am also curious, and I don't know what all this other stuff is about that people talk about that we told ourselves was never okay. And I just experienced this thing with drugs that some people said was awesome, and a lot of people said you can't do that. And I know coming out the other side of it that I'm better off for it, that I feel a new understanding of life, a new goodness. And something that echoes through and was significant 
and allows me to have a new appreciation for life, that can't be bad. So what if what if the sex thing, what if what if that's the same sort of thing? What if that is something um to enter into uh in a in a proper context, in a sort of sacred way, in a intentional way? Um so to not treat it like something like pornography where I'm just trying to get get my uh endorphins up and be done with it but also but like instead look at it as a way to connect to myself um to her and to the world and then looking at too like the way that i'm approaching um what i think the future should look like and how i'm approaching the present totally switched up because of the situation that i don't have to wait for things to be okay that i don't have to look to the future but that now is good and whatever comes is good and the change is good too. And so thinking about the change, I started thinking about back to this intuitive me and thinking back to what I was thinking about before, like how this right brain part of myself that's non-vocal seems to be a different self and getting curious about them and asking questions. Um, there's a lot of intuition there and a lot of blurry lines, but the long and short is I came to realize that this voice within me was not masculine at all, but very feminine. And not only that, had her own desires and thoughts apart from mine. And this was a crazy revelation. And it was really helpful to be in relationship with Jane at this point because she poses questions to me that are open-ended, that aren't guiding in any way. Just like, oh, she sounds female. What is she like? Is, does she have the same likes as you? Or does, you know, is she, uh, do you think her personality is different? What, what is all that? And you know, as I'm asking all these questions, I go, wow, yeah, no, she is like, she is totally the me that I've always recognized. <laughs> um, but she's also totally different. And and what is going on here? Because like, why is there such a split here of uh, desires and wants? And, you know, like, even down to stuff like color, the me that I know that I've always grown up with, uh, green and blue, favorite colors. And I get to in communication with this other part of me and she's like no like pink and red show the pink and red and this is true for like everything from uh foods and tastes and and all this sort of stuff and i come to recognize and i think that this is probably the closest that i can get to an understanding of it is the reason that my right brain is this way is because this was all stuff that was just me that would that would have been fully integrated in a different society these different parts of me that are just me that don't have anything to do with masculine or feminine or like what our expectations of this thing should be but there were certain parts that were enforced like oh this is the male thing yeah you're male you're supposed to be doing this and then there's these other parts that were like no you can't do that and so those were relegated to the um internal world to the uh the part of me that is accessed when i'm sitting with myself alone the part of me that is non-vocal that is more intuitive, uh, the right brain me. And so all of these feminine values got shoved over to that side and has colored this experience of my right brain, uh, which is decidedly feminine. Now, obviously those values are um, arbitrary. I'm using masculine and feminine as a shorthand because it's something that we understand. It's a framework that we're in. I just want to put the caveat of like all these things through different times in history have meant different things. Um, before uh before world world war one uh pink was actually a masculine color and i think it probably had to do with like blood 
and in red and fighting, but that flipped. And there's so many things like that that are totally arbitrary, but we decide this must be masculine, this must be feminine. But at the end of the day, what that means is um, if I'm embodying this other part of myself, uh, then it is going to look decidedly feminine to all of us because we are all in that framework. And as I was getting a recognition of this part of me, realizing like, okay, so there's these two parts that I have. And one of them is decidedly feminine and she's got a different character and a different way of being. And so, you know, I kind of asked her, like, what, what do you want to be known as? And her response was Mira. And I like, I really like that phrase, like that, um, because it's, it's a name, but it's also uh, like where it's a root word. So that's where we get uh, mirror and um, miraculous and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of fun wordplay there. And so that was a really cool thing, um, which also kind of confirmed that it was coming from her because the right brain is a lot more interested in metaphor, a lot more interested in um, interconnections and wordplay and stuff like that. So it's, uh, it's, it's brilliant. It's great. And um, so, yeah, so I guess that's where all this is coming to is this recognition that within myself, uh, there is a her. And again, to say her is pretty arbitrary and it is stereotyping in a certain way because I think that there's a lot more going on in my right brain than just her. Um, and overall, I have to recognize myself in that case as a they. And as a they, not just as like somewhere in between male and female, but housing both male and female. And that creates a new complication. And really, um, it throws a lot of wrenches in the mix if we're trying to do these binaries because if you're saying that um you know it's never okay to be gay well okay how much is gay what how are you defining gay are you defining gay as just purely two male bodies going together okay um but what about uh if the internal identity is male is it okay if you have somebody who feels fully internally male being with another male or what about vice versa which is more in my case i'm recognizing that who I am, I associate more with my right brain than my left. That's just how I function. That's how I always have. And to recognize that that might be feminine means that in one perspective of looking at me as a whole human being, you could say I'm female. But I have a male body and I don't feel dysphoria over that. The best I can describe is my male body is like a, a shell, you know, like how a snail has a shell. And you wouldn't call the shell the snail, but you also would never want to rip a snail out of its shell. That that would be traumatic as well. And um, it would be a, a mistake to get, say, oh, look at that shell when there's a snail in it. But um, it's also a part of, of the being as a whole. It's, it's a protective house. It's a home. And um, my masculine shell, my masculine outside houses my feminine inside. And that feels right. That feels good. And so if, if we're going by that, then it's like, okay, well, what do you do with this within these normal frameworks? Because if I feel most days more female inside and my attraction more has to do with um, like recognizing like, like, like a resonance of sameness rather than opposites then would you consider me to be gay? You know, the, the lines get difficult, 
really quickly. And then that's not even considering that this might be going on with the other person that I might be in relationship with. So, and if it's fluid, what about the times where I feel one or I feel the other? And then also, you know, something is arbitrary. If we're talking identity, you know, is it as arbitrary as what side of a sex change somebody happens to be on? Like, are they still considered male if they have all female parts or vice versa? And you, you can't really fit all this stuff in the box because this full spectrum of human experience, once you really open it up and really look at somebody as an individual, and that's not to say that we all, you know, I, I am a bit of a unique case, I think, where I, I, I sit in between, which is something that really happens for me all the time. It's something that um, I, I enjoy those spaces. I enjoy being uh, in the middle and acting as a sort of mediator between parties. I enjoy seeing both sides of an issue. And that's not for everybody. And that does reflect in my gender identity as well, which to some sense is constructed. But there's nothing wrong with that because all of our gender identity is constructed. That's the thing is like even heteronormativity, like we say like, oh, that's the default. But but that's hammered into us from an early age of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, whether we're given direct clues like, oh, you can't play with dolls because you're a boy or whether indirect clues like praising when there's toughness or or um, complimenting a girl on her beauty, all those kind of things give us subconscious identities to hold on to of like what we're allowed to be and what we're not allowed to be. And uh, there's no escaping that. So you might as well have fun with it. And I guess that's what I'm getting at is these frameworks are frameworks that were handed to us, but there's also some play that we can get in, some creativity that we can get in with it of reinventing the frameworks, recognizing that we're never going to really escape the frameworks, but also recognizing that they're just frameworks and that's okay. And so like for me personally, some of this is constructed and I could decide to continue to cut out Mira, to continue to cut out that side of me that I, I don't want because it doesn't fit the framework. Um, and I think really over time, uh, as I would get older and, and go through life, that part of me could fade away, but it's just as true on the other side. And so in a certain sense, this is my choice, but in another sense, it is just who I am and how I am born. Neither of those are exclusive and they're both very complicated and they're both muddy and they both involve uh, ghosts of other people. They both involve the, the ways that culture informs us, the ways that individual relationships inform us. Each one of us has a slightly different view to begin with of what male and female means. So even our frameworks are individual. So in choosing, there gets to be even more freedom to find who you are underneath it all and both who you choose to be and who you've always been. And for me, this is something as I am choosing to be this, the reason I'm choosing it is because I have always been haunted by Mira. The times I have always felt most as myself were when I was alone, like in the car or on the mountain doing a wildflower hike. And I had discordance because I wouldn't allow myself the permission to be that person because my framework wouldn't let me fit in, uh, fit that person in, into a box. And so I would force myself into these boxes. And again, that there's nothing 
wrong with that because we can't avoid the boxes, but if we can change the boxes, we can choose new boxes, we can become a little bit less haunted by the echoes of ourselves and allow ourselves to be more integrated, more open, to allow ourselves to be haunted by those other than us, allow ourselves to um, start with a baseline and grow out from that, to to be integrated as ourselves, to um, to not be ghosts, and and to be full and alive and unique, and then to allow ourselves to expand and grow as we interact with other people, uh, to have this baseline to branch off from. And it looks like we've done it again. Um, there's more to cover here. I think especially uh, this brings us close to uh, 2019 or so, but the last couple years have been huge. And um, I want to really get to those. So this is probably a good stopping point and we'll get back to it. And sorry, here we are. It looks like we're going to do seven parts for this whole thing, which sounds good to me. That's, that's a nice round number. So, and maybe who knows, maybe it'll be more, but, um, I don't know about you, but I'm getting ready to wrap it up. I think, uh, getting ready to, uh, be able to think about new subjects and, uh, getting excited about finishing this cycle, this season, this, um, set, uh, this specific mode of being and, and coming into something new with with this still never not discarding it just um coming into something different so we'll see what happens and so it should be soon i'm gonna try to uncover a a uh, couple extras here there's some old recordings that i did that are just storytelling um so we might add those but uh we'll see i'm not gonna put the timing again we'll, it'll happen when it happens but uh, i really enjoyed this one and it's good to uh, let you guys know a little bit more who I am under the surface, where a lot of this stuff is coming from, and uh, just my own identity and my modes of being in the world. So if anybody else has anything like that that they need to talk about, always an open book. And um, also, if you have any questions, if you're confused about some of the stuff that I'm saying, if some of it feels overwhelming or feels confusing, feels uh, incomplete or uh, inconsistent or out of the blue, anything like that, please, please send me a message and I will, uh, I will talk to you. I would love to talk to you.